Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, again for your word. What a great and awesome book that it is, Lord. We thank you that it's not a, an old antiquated book, but it's the living, breathing word of God, and we thank you that it applies to our lives today. So, Father, we ask that you would be our teacher tonight, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, Father, and that each person who's here would be receptive to hear from you. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and your grace, for your infinite mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Exodus 23. We're continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book study right through the entire Old Testament. And as you know, just a few weeks ago, we saw God giving the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. And you remember that God made it very clear that this is a very significant event in that Almighty God Himself spoke, opened up the sky and spoke. There was lightning, and, and we know it was a, it, there was the earthquake, and the people were shaking in their boots, and I would be too. And then God spoke and shared with them the Ten Commandments to let them know how significant that the law of God really is. Now we remember, though, that the law of God, the Bible tells us very clearly, that it is a taskmaster or a schoolmaster that leads us to the cross. There's too many people that think that the law will somehow save you. That somehow if I keep all these rules and somehow God will love me more and then one day I'll get into heaven because I keep more rules than most people. But that's not how the Bible is at all. And that's not the God that we serve at all. The God that we serve loves us in spite of us. Amen? Not because we do so many wonderful and great things, but God loves us because He created us in His image, because He created us to have a relationship with Him. So no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've blown it, I want you to know that God loves you. And He loves you so much that He'd rather die than live without you. He loves you so much that He left the throne of heaven and came and became flesh and suffered and died that you might have eternal life. Now in Exodus, we see that after He gave them the Ten Commandments, that He gave them a more clear understanding of what the commandments meant. And, he, and we went from the law of God to the law of Moses. And now the law of Moses is spoken specifically to Israel. And we're not under the law of Moses anymore, but there are great things that we learn about the law of Moses uh, that apply to our lives today. You know, we're not making sacrifices anymore. You know, that all pointed to Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled that. But there are many things that we see in the law of Moses, obviously, that still have a very big impact on us today. In Exodus 21, we saw that, that we are bound by love. And we saw the, the, it, him expounding upon several of the commandments, speaking about what it means to truly be a servant. You know what? Being a servant is, is a great thing if you have a great master. Amen? We talked about this last week. And we're bound by love to the Lord, not by law. Many people go to church because they feel like they have to. You might have been here tonight because somebody brought you and you're, oh man, all right, I'll go. You know, maybe God will love me a little more. I can, you know, put an X by my name or something. I'll go. And you know, the reality is that that's not why we come to church. Amen? It's a love relationship. Nobody had to force me to court my wife. Nobody had to pound me on the, on the shins with a, a rod and tell me, okay, it's Sunday. You better get up and go spend some time with that fiancé of yours. You better go spend some time. I mean, I looked forward to seeing her. Why? Because I love her. And because I was looking forward to spending the rest of my life with her. And that's the way church ought to be. Amen? It's not a have to, it should be a get to. It should be, man, I can't wait to go and hear from the Lord. I can't wait to go and worship. I can't wait to go to spend time in His presence. I can't wait to go and see my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and have fellowship with them. And that's what chapter 21 was all about, being bound to God by love, not by duty, not by law. And then last week in chapter 22, we saw that for there to be restoration, there must be restitution. Now, what does that mean? Sin must be paid for. Why? Because sin separates man from God. And sin is a and with sin comes consequences. And so sin leaves man separated from God. Unless something is done, man will remain separated from God. And we saw last week as we looked in depth at thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not commit adultery that sin does have consequences. And one of the things we mentioned is that, in those, that God made it very clear that if a man were to be intimate with a woman, in God's eyes they were married. It was like saying, I do. And we talked about how if that were the case today, I think behavior would change a little bit. Can you imagine if you're automatically married? Well, oh, you're married, that's it. Okay, she has half your stuff, that's it. All right, yep, she takes your name. You're responsible. I mean, I think they'd probably clear out all the... Uh, all the bars in town would probably clear out pretty quick. But the reality is that when we, the actions that we take have consequences. The actions that we take do. But the reality is, again, that the law doesn't save us, but it shows us our need for a Savior. So tonight I titled the message, and again, I, I went through, and this is what God put on my heart. I titled the message, Attributes of Our Savior. 
Because it's interesting to me that we will see attributes of our Savior in looking at the law of Moses written hundreds of years before Jesus even came. We're going to see some clear attributes of our Savior. The first attribute that we're going to see as we begin in verse 1 is that our Savior is a God of truth and a God of righteous judgment or justice. Let's begin in verse 1 of Exodus 23. And it says, You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Now this is dealing with court. And in dealing with court, he's saying that we are not to circulate untruth. It's also dealing with our lives as well. You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the tongue is one of the smallest members in our body, but the tongue can do great damage. And you know what? We are not to be gossipers. We're not to be people that take and circulate untruth. You know, you can be either wind or water when it comes to untruth. You can be a wind that fans the flame and makes it worse, or you can be water and you can squash it. You can put it out. One of two things. And more often than not, unfortunately, we'll take something we've heard and we'll go, and even in the guise of spirituality, saying, oh, here's something you've got to hear. You need to pray for this brother, man. Let me just share with you so you can pray with him. Pray for him, right? And we go and we just, we just dump on people. And that's not what God wants us to do. And it says very clearly in the law of Moses, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. This to me made me think about these witnesses they have for hire. It's a joke. Our judicial system is a total joke. Because here's what happens. You can go pay somebody if you've got money, and you can get them to sit up and witness as experts to just about anything. And before you know it, you know, it, it dilutes the truth. And we're not looking for truth in our judicial system anymore. We're just looking to see if we can get somebody, get, they can get away with it. Whatever we got to do, if we got to lie, whatever we have to do. And the Lord very clearly here in the law of Moses is saying, look, don't lie to get somebody off. Don't lie. Don't put your hand with the wicked and give a false testimony so your friend can get away with a crime. He's saying, don't circulate things that aren't true. Don't espouse things that aren't the truth. Why? Because our God is a God of truth. You know, Jesus, it says of Jesus in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is truth. And so when we are telling lies, who is the father of lies? The Bible tells us it's Satan, right? And so when we are telling the truth, we are being Christ-like. And when we are telling lies, we are being Satan-like. When we are misleading people on purpose, we are giving... And the sad part is when the USA Today said something like 94% of all people say they lie every day and the other 6% were lying or something like that. But the reality is that's the sad thing is that people lie all the time. And typically we lie because of our motives as we're going to see here in a minute. So we're to speak the truth and not to pervert justice. We're not to try to to get things over on people, especially in the kingdom of God. Verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. We're not to be influenced by the crowd, bowing to peer pressure. You know what? Any dead fish can go with the flow. Amen? It's real easy to go with the flow. The easiest thing in the world is just to be like the world, to go with the world. And it's, it cracks me up because, you know, most of you know I was a youth pastor for about 15 years. And teenagers think that they're really cool if they're acting just like everybody else. They think that's just like the coolest thing in the world is I gotta, I gotta wear the certain kind of shoes so I can have the shoes everybody has. I gotta wear the right kind of clothes. I gotta listen to the right kind of music. I gotta have the right kind of speech. I gotta have my hair cut a certain way. And you know what? A dead fish can do that. You can go with the flow just being dead and just laying in the river. You can float with everybody else, no problem. But here's what God's called us to do. He's called us to go against the flow. Amen? We're called to not be like the world. We're called to, be, to go opposite of what the world wants. The Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity, or you're an enemy of God. It's the opposite. When you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And it says here in this verse, do not, do not follow. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Do not follow the crowd. Don't just be like everybody else. We're to make a stand for God's word. You know, if you're not standing for something, you've heard this before, if you're not standing for something, you'll fall for anything. And that really is true. What do you stand for? What is the foundation for your life? You know, people, I talk to people all the time, I'll witness to them, share them about the love of God, and I'll say, why is it you think you're going to heaven? Oh, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. What's the foundation for your faith? Well, I don't believe this, I don't believe that, I don't believe this, okay. Well, what's the foundation for your belief system? Well, I don't just, just kind of the way I feel. Oh, that's great, okay. Well, how about the Bible? Well, I don't believe in the Bible. Have you ever read it? Well, no, I've never really read it. So you don't believe in something you haven't read, but your foundation is the way you feel. That's what you're resting on. 
Help me out with that. The reality is that the world falls into that trap all day long. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. You know, here's the good news. The foundation I stand upon is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead, and He's coming back. Amen? And that's a fact. That's not a hope so. That's a no so. I don't hope I'm going to heaven. I know that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that I'm ha ha heaven bound, right? I mean, we're going. And that's such a, a blessing to know that. And But what happens is we follow evildoers and we fall for anything if we don't stand for something. If we don't have a foundation, we'll never know when we miss the mark. If we don't know the law of God, we'll never know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. And so what happens is that we try to water things down and make people feel good. And here we see in the law of Moses, he's saying, look, don't follow the evil crowd. Don't just go with everybody else. Don't fall into that trap. You make a stand. Be different. We're to be set apart from the world. Amen? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're aliens here. And you know what? I love it when people call me a Jesus freak. That's a good thing. I like that. Oh, you're a Jesus freak. Who better to be a freak for? You're a fanatic. You know what? That's right. I'm a fanatic because a fanatic means somebody that's sold out, and I want to be sold out. Would you rather be a 49er fanatic? I mean, that's real, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I like the Niners, but hey, they're not getting me into heaven. Amen? And you know what? And they're pretty weak sometimes. I mean, no matter what team you, you're following, you know, people paint their faces red and jump up and down and stand up with their big belly sticking out in 35-degree weather with their name of their team across their stomach, and that's okay. But if you get excited about God, you're a religious fanatic, right? I mean, help me out. We're talking about eternal stuff. And they're talking about temporal. Don't follow the crowd. Don't follow the evilness of this world. Let's be in the world, but not of the world, and set apart from it. Verse 3. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Here's the good news. Our God is faithful, and He's always fair. He's always fair. He's always just. He doesn't play favorites. That's our God. He loves us all the same. All of us. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter what kind of, how, how educated you are. It doesn't, none of that matters. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. You know, as men, we do. We judge people immediately. We see them and we make an impression by how they're dressed or what kind of car they're... God doesn't care about that one bit. God looks at people and He sees our heart and He loves us. And it says there, don't show partiality to the poor man. And we're going to see the, con the, the opposite of this verse in verse 6. But He's saying, look, because the man's poor, don't feel sorry for him and, and let him go just because he's poor. But we're going to see in verse 6 that He's going to say, but don't mistreat him because he's poor either. You know, treat everybody the same. Love everybody. Now here's going to be the hard part of treating everybody the same. Look at verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey or the one who, or one who hates you lying under its burden you sh and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Now let me put this in today's terms. Okay, you, you, again, being kind to your enemies, this is a new thing. With the law of Moses, they've never heard this before. All you want to do with your enemies is kill them and get even. All they wanted to do with the Egyptians was kill them and get even. They just went through the Red Sea and they, got, they saw God wipe out the Egyptians. And they're thinking, there it is, that's it. That's what you do to enemies. You smoke them, right? And here's what happens. The Lord's saying, no, no, no. If you see your enemy's ox and he's, and he's wandering off, you need to go and, and bring him back. Now, in today's terms, it'd be like if you're, you know, the boss that you have that you can't stand or, or that real noise, nosy neighbor, noisy person that lives down the street that yells and screams all the time or that teacher you've got in school that just really gets on your nerves. It'd be like if you went outside and you saw their car slowly rolling down the hill into the intersection. And you see it. And, and it says here that your, your desire is to refrain. Your desire is to, oh, this is going to be good. I'm going to watch this. Ooh, that's going to be good. Oh, hey, check this out, bro. Watch this. It's going to be good. You know, because you're thinking, oh, man, it's going to be a big crash. And that guy, man, he's going to be out here crying in a minute. And this is going to, oh, I'm going to sit right here. Where's my lawn chair, right? I mean, that, part of us is we love to see those who give us grief, those enemies of ours, and we love to see them suffer. Because that's the flesh. The flesh says, I want to get even. I want to see you hurting. You know how you're always pestering me? Oh, I can't wait. And so this is, he said, if you see their ox, look, it says again in verse 4, if, you, if your enemy's ox or donkey is going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. So if you see the guy's car rolling down the hill, you're supposed to run out in the middle of the street and give the guy a brake, right? By putting the brake on in his car, right? I mean, get in his car, put the brake on in his car, and bring it back to him. Now look what it says in verse 5. This is pretty clear, though. 
But if you see the donkey of one who hates you, so this guy's possessions, this guy hates you. He can't stand you. He hates you. He wants nothing to do with you. Bless him. Oh, man, that ain't even right. I mean, that, Lord, I mean, come on. I mean, help me out here. But you know what? Who's our example? Who's our example? Jesus. What did they do to Jesus? They beat him. They mocked him. They scourged him. They crucified him. And all he did was love him. He never answered back. He didn't curse him. He loved him. He knew who was smiting him. Tell us who's smiting you. Tell us who. Pow! You know what he said? Uh, not only do I know who you are in his heart, I'm going to go die for you because I love you. That's the God that we serve. We are to follow Christ's example, not the world's. The world says, get even. And Christ says, love people. Love them. Serve them. Lay down your life for them. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I saw, I've seen many examples of this, but one that was just a really incredible example to me is a, a real good friend of mine that many of you know by the name of Rick Franks. Now, he and I worked together over in San Jose. And a matter of fact, he just became the pastor of Calvary Chapel Palo Alto starting this Sunday, which is exciting. But he, he is such a great brother. And we had this woman in our office in San Jose that nobody liked. And I mean nobody. I mean nobody. Nobody. If you're on her team, it was like, oh! And, she was, and then, so you take a person that's hateful and mean and vindictive and wicked, and then you give her power. Oh, that's not good. All right, so now she's the manager, and she's got all these people working for her. And here's Rick, who God is blessing. He's a Christian man. He loves the Lord. He's doing his job in a great way. And he's selling so much that she starts getting vindictive and wanting to get even and just ah, and spreading lies about him. And, you know, it was, just, it was brutal. And there's a part of me as his friend that I wanted to go slap her. I have to confess. I'd be like, what is she saying about you? Oh, man, that ain't even right. And Rick would just never say anything. We'd go in our, in our Bible study at work, and he would just, every week, let's pray for Linda. You know, half people are like, oh, all right, we'll pray for Linda. And so we'd pray for Linda. And you know what I love, though, is he saw her in a time of distress. When you see your enemy in a time of distress, as you see in verse 5, you're to go and minister to your enemy. And so what did Rick do when he heard that she was getting ready to take a test to get a promotion, and Rick had just taken the test and passed it, and he heard she was struggling with it. Now, he could have easily said, oh yeah, taking the test, I could go and just mess her all up, or I could just not help her, or I could pray that she fails, or something. Instead, what did Rick do? He went and said, hey Linda, I hear you're going to be taking that test. And you know what? I would be more than happy to sit down with you over the next few days at lunchtime, and just help you study and prepare for it, because I just took it and I passed it. And she said, really? Would, would you do that for me? He said, I'd, I'd love to do that for you. And the day before her test, I'm walking by his cube, and he says, hey, Dave, come on over here. We're going to pray for Linda for her test, that God would just bless her, that God would give her clarity of mind, and that she would pass her test. Again, evil, hateful woman. And you know what? We prayed for her, and not only did she pass the test, but I go by Rick's desk one day, and he's got this letter from her just thanking him. And you know what? Then she started coming to the Bible study. And you know why? Because you don't overcome evil with evil, you overcome evil with good. Amen? A soft answer turns away wrath. Most of us would say, you know what, I hope she fails, man. You know, and that's our response. That's the flesh. But the Lord says, love them. Their ox is in a ditch. Take the ox out and bring it back. It's under a heavy burden, even if they hate you. The Bible says they shall know us by the love we have one for another. Amen? It's, the kind, it's kindness that leads people to repentance. It's not a guy standing on a box saying, you're all going to fry in hell if you don't get saved right now. That's, I, I don't see anybody getting saved. You ever see anybody at the box? Oh, dude, I don't want to fry. Nobody does that. It's kindness that leads people to repentance. And he's saying right here that an attribute of God and an attribute of those that follow him is truth and justice. Being righteous with people, being loving, being truthful. Reaching out to people even when they don't respond to you. You know what? You find out what kind of person you are. You know, when people say, well, I want to serve the Lord. I want to be a servant of God. We'll find out what kind of servant you are when people start treating you like one. Amen? Oh, man, that guy's treating me like a servant. Well, isn't that what you are? Yeah, but I didn't want to be treated like one. I mean, you know, we have this thing where, yeah, I'm a servant, but don't treat me like a servant. I want to sit in the high seat. I want, to be the, I want people to recognize what I've done, and I want them to praise me. And you know what? That's not being Christ-like. Being Christ-like is ministering to people that you know will never minister back to you. It's ministering to people that have made it very clear that they hate you. 
Because that's what our Savior did. And that's an attribute of our Savior. And it should be an attribute of those who follow after the Lord. Verse 6. You shall not pervert the judgment of, the, of your poor in his dispute. Again, this is the opposite. Just as you don't take advantage of the poor, I mean, just as you don't give him leniency because he's poor, you don't take advantage of him either. You treat him the same as everybody else. Again, God is not a respecter of man's wealth. Does God care how much money you have? You think when Bill Gates prays that God goes, oh, it's Bill Gates. He's got a lot of money. Let me pay real clear attention to his prayer. Let me make sure I, let me sure I sit down for this one. Oh, Bill Gates is going to pray. Well, he's got a lot of money. I better respect him. Let me ask you a question. Who gave us all the money that we have anyway? God did. So whose is it? It's his money. So does he care who's got more of it? He gave it to you. He knows who's got But the reality is that he's not a respecter of men's wealth. Money means nothing to God. It's irrelevant. The only thing it does do is it will show us how much we love the Lord sometimes because we get so focused on money, we don't have time for God. But other than that, he's not, it, it's, it's irrelevant to him. And he's not a respecter of men's wealth. Verse 7. He says, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and, and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. Lies, gossips are tools of, again, the enemy, and bringing harm to the righteous and innocent. The innocent and righteous were not to be condemned through wicked and illegal tricks. God's heart is that we b- pursue truth and justice. Again, what do we see in the world today? We'll see people lie through their teeth to get people off. You know what? This drives me nuts when I see this, but I remember who their ultimate judge is, and it's in God's hands. But, you know, somebody will confess, or they'll find the murder weapon where a guy killed 45 people, but because they've got the address wrong by one number on the search warrant, they let people go. Oh, oh, illegal search. The number on the search warrant is off by one. You went in the wrong house. It's not going to work. Sorry. Oh, that confession is illegal. Why? Well, he, he didn't get all of his Miranda rights. And yeah, he confessed that he did it. We know it's the truth, but we got to let him go. You know, that's perverting justice, isn't it? Don't we want to know what the truth is? I would not make a very good defense. I couldn't be a defense attorney. That wouldn't work for me. Because if the guy was guilty, I'd be like, dude, go confess. You're guilty, man. You did. Did you do it? Yeah. Well, why are you asking me to help you? You did it. You need to go and say, I did it. I was wrong. I confess. Put me in jail. Whatever the consequences are. I'd probably be an okay prosecutor because I would know, oh, you're guilty, dude. Now we're going to have to, you're, you're going to have to know what the truth is and we're going to have to bring you to that place. Now, God is a God of grace and a God of mercy, but he's a God of truth. Amen. And we need not to lie to get away with things. We need not to lie to get by. And we see here the Lord says, don't be killers of the innocent. Don't lie to bring, to bring uh, false judgment upon those who are honoring and serving me. And that's the warning that he gives to them. Sadly, again, our legal system today is more concerned with the system than with the truth. And it just breaks your heart. But again, there's one judgment that no man will escape. And that's the ultimate judgment before God. Verse 8. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Bribes impair a judge's discernment. It will cause a righteous man to lie and to compromise. It will turn a man into a hireling. Here's what happens. When money gets involved, we will compromise the truth. You know what? We see this in very many avenues of the world. Business people will tell a lie to swing a deal because it's worth a lot of money. Oh, well, I'm just, uh, I'm fudging. I don't really know what that number is, but I'll throw something out. I'll try to make it work. I mean, we've seen what's happened to all the CEOs lately of all these major corporations and they're padding everything and they're lying so they can make more money. And the Lord says, don't do that. Don't take a bribe. Don't, don't pervert justice for money. You know where else it happens? It happens in the church. There are people that will pervert the truth in order to win popularity with men. Or they're being paid by a board or something somewhere that tells them, well, you know, you can't teach that part because if you teach that, then we're to, you know. And so what they do is they say, oh, well, I work for you, so I better go ahead and not teach the, the whole truth. I better water down the gospel because I don't want to offend anybody. And, that, you know, the board's told, you know what, let me tell you right now, if we ever had a board here that told me to stop preaching the gospel, I'll go across the street and start another church. The next day. Because you know what? Here's the reality. That's not what it's about. It's not about pleasing men. It's about honoring God. Amen? And it's not about being a hireling that, you know, is, is, is a slave to the bucks. A slave to the bribery of men. A slave to, well, if I do this, then I'll make more money. You know what? The love of money is the root of all evil. That's what the Bible says. When you fall in love with money, you compromise all over the place. Well, I can't go to church. Why not? Well, i got to work. Why do you got to work? Well, because, you know, I need to make some extra money so I can buy some more stuff. 
Buying stuff you don't need to impress people you don't, you know, spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't know, right? And that's what we do. And they say, don't be bribed. Don't fall into the trap of being so caught up by money that, you're, that you, it's going to change your opinion, that you're going to compromise the truth, that you're going to water down the gospel. Praise the Lord that God has given us the promise that He will be the one that provides for us. You know, we'll speak with, again, with worldly popularity in mind, with acceptance and income, then faithfulness to God. You know what? Speak the truth. God will take care of you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The next time somebody asks you something, you know, no, dude, that's not really how it's going to work. And you know you're going to lose the deal. Lose the deal. It's okay. Honor God. Amen? It's way more important. You know, when somebody comes along and it looks like, oh, if you do this, you know, you, well, you don't have to go to church as much. You don't have to do ministry as much. This will take you away from doing things that are eternal. But look how much more stuff you'll have. That's one of the biggest tools of the enemy. He tries to distract us with the things of the world. And sometimes he'll, distract, he'll try to distract us with good things to keep us from the best thing. Sometimes we'll be so doing the good thing that we're missing out on the best thing. Sometimes it's not even anything that's wrong. But it's not best. You know, maybe you're, you're, you're coaching soccer or something and it keeps you from coming to church. Well, coaching your kid's soccer team is a good thing. But it's keeping you from the best thing, which is bringing your kid to church on Sunday. Amen? I mean, sometimes we get so off that we miss out. And he's saying, don't take a bribe. Don't let money influence the way you think. Don't let the things of this world keep you from honoring Almighty God. Verse 9. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Don't look down on or be prejudiced against a foreign man or woman. While for Israel this speaks of foreign-born people, as followers of Christ, we should, all, we should be lovers of all people. Again, no matter what their race, their age, no matter how much money they have. We were meeting at the vet's hall, and a lot of people come in, and the whole point was, look, I don't care who you are, Jesus loves you. And you know what? We need to make sure those people see the love of God in us. And you know what it says here? They, we were strangers. And you know, aren't you glad that somebody loved you enough to invite you to church? Aren't you glad that somebody loved you enough to teach you the Word of God or to bring you to Sunday school when you were a kid? Aren't you glad that somebody loved you enough and loved God enough to to share the gifts that God had given them with you that you might grow in your faith and your walk with the Lord? It says there, look, don't look down on the strangers because you used to be a stranger. And don't look down on unbelievers because guess what? That's who you used to be. Amen? And it's just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. You know, just because you've been born again, that doesn't make you better than anybody else. It makes you blessed. You've been chosen by God. You're a new creation in Him. But you know what? Shouldn't it just break your heart for everybody who's not saved yet? Shouldn't every born-again person this side of heaven be burdened with every unsaved person this side of hell? That should be our burden and our passion and our heart. Our God is a God of truth, a God of justice. Those are His attributes. And those should be attributes of His children. We should be people of truth. So in love with the truth that we won't compromise it for anything this world has to offer. Nobody can bribe me enough to get me to quit speaking the truth. Nobody can give me enough accolades. Nobody can give me enough position. Nobody can do anything to keep me from having a love for these strangers, these people that are outside the kingdom of God. That's where my passion needs to be. That's where my heart needs to be. The next attribute, along with being a God of truth and of justice, a Savior of truth and a Savior of justice, again, I praise God that He is a God who's who loves us. He's justified us by His grace and His mercy, not by our good works. The second thing we'll see is that He is a God of rest and provision. He's a God of rest and provision. Look at verse 10 through 13. Six years you shall sow in your land and gather its produce. For, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what you, they leave the beast of the field may eat in like manner you shall do with your vineyard and with your olive grove. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And God says, not only do you have a Sabbath day, but you need to have a Sabbath year. That's where the word sabbatical comes from. A Sabbath year. So every six years they were to work and grow and to harvest, but in the seventh year they were to leave the field dormant and take an entire year off. All the servants would be rested, all the animals would be rested, an entire year that they would, not, they would not do anything. Now, the hard part was that people get like people are today. And we're so striving for stuff and for money, we can't imagine taking some time off because we view that as lost wages. And he's saying, look, you need to let that lay dormant for a year. Take a sabbatical. Rest. Take some time off. Now, that's very difficult, again, if your faith is not in God. 
Who's the one commanding them to do it? God is. So who's the one that says he's going to provide for them? God will. And you know what happens is we start trusting in our own abilities and we stop trusting in God. That's why, as we're going to see in the next two verses, he says, take the Sabbath day off. That's why so many people are missing church because they got to work. Wait a minute. Didn't God tell you? Doesn't he promise you in his word that he will provide for you? Well, yeah. So why are you missing church? I got to work. Oh, so you don't trust what God told you then. You know, I promise you, you go to your boss and say, you know what? When you, before you get hired, I can't work on Sundays. I just can't do it. I, I did it my whole life. I'm not working. No, can't work on Sunday. I've had customers say, hey, you, you know, you come out and we can put this huge ad in the phone book. You've got to see me on Sunday. Uh, I don't think so. Why? Because God is first. Amen? And do you think that God will allow you to starve if you honor him? The answer is he never will. He'll always provide for you. He'll always care for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And they're saying, so take a sabbatical year. Let the field sit. And not only when you let the field sit does it increase your own health because you rest, but it ministers to people around you because things that just grow naturally in that spot over the next year, it was allowed that the poor would go out and be able to glean from your field, and that would be God's way of providing for the poor. So not only was he providing for your rest and your health, he was providing for the poor by you just simply being obedient and resting in him. Our God is a God of rest, and he's a God of provision. And you know what? As Christians, we should never be overwhelmed with what God calls us to do. If you're overwhelmed and if you're burnt, you cannot burn out if you're doing it for the Lord. If God's called you and you're doing it for him, you will not burn out. Why? Because God is the one empowering you to do it. If you burn out, then you're doing it. And you shouldn't be doing it. Someone says, man, I'm just totally burnt on doing that. Dude, stop. Don't do it anymore. Yeah, but no, stop. Just don't do it. We'll get someone else to do it. Why? Because you're doing it in your own strength. To me, what I get to do in the church, this is such a get-to, I can't even tell you. This is the greatest get-to in the world. I love, and you know what? There's those of you who come early and set up church, and it's a get-to. Working in the bookstore, get-to. Leading worship, get-to. Ministering to our kids in the children's ministry, a get-to. Coming and working in the lending library, driving over the hills, some of you guys. Coming and doing the the coffee and stuff. It's a get-to. Why? Because God called you to do it. No man did. And when you're doing it for the love of God, it's a total blessing. And you realize that our God is a God of provision, and that He's a God of rest. And we can take up his yoke, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we don't walk through life struggling. We just rest in him. And we have total peace in our walk with God. And that's an attribute of our God and should be an attribute of his people. Now sadly, Israel would later ignore the statute. We know this because God says later when Daniel is captured that they had for over 400 years not taken this sabbatical every seventh year. So what did God do? He put them into bondage for 70 years to make up for the 420 years that they just went nonstop without taking a sabbatical, God said, okay, well, you guys won't do it. I'm going to make you do it. And what happened was he put him in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. You know what? Here's the reality. I absolutely believe this is true. I absolutely believe this is true. I will not have anything more than what God wants me to have. And it doesn't matter if I work 9,000 hours a week or I just work what God calls me to work. He's going to provide for me the same. Amen? Because you know what? It's amazing. I, I'm blown away. There's times when, when things are difficult at work or whatever's going on, and God will, will bless me from somewhere I've never even thought about. And there's other times when it's the exact opposite. I'm going mock to with my hair on fire, and the car blows up or something, and I'm brack even again, right? I mean, so what is God? God wants us just to rest in Him and to trust in Him and not strive for stuff. Verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. And you, that your ox and your donkey may rest, that your son of, and of your female servant and stranger may be refreshed. You know what? A lot of people make the mistake where you're real driven, so everybody around you has to be. And I've been described as being driven. People have told me that all my life. But let me tell you this. I have a very heavy burden that as our church continues to grow, that anybody that comes on, that's working full-time in our church doesn't get worked into the ground. I want people to view it as a get-to and never a have-to. And because I'm crazy and I study till 4.30 in the morning doesn't mean that people who are on staff have to do the same thing. Amen? And he's saying here, you know what? You rest because when you rest, what's going to happen? All the people that work with you are going to have to rest too. The ox are going to have to rest. The the servants are going to have to rest. Everybody's going to get to rest if you rest like you're supposed to. So if you rest, everybody else will too. And that's what he's saying here. 
He says there, your oxen and the servants and everybody else will be, re- will be allowed to rest. Verse 13. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. So be careful. Circumspect means to walk around care- looking carefully. Idol was, was to be avoided. Idol worship was to be avoided, right down to the names of the other deities not even being mentioned. Paul said, concerning evil, may we be ignorant. Now you might say, well, I don't have any idols at my house, that's not a problem for me, and I don't mention idols, and I'm not caught up in idols. Well, yeah, you are, because we all struggle with them. What are the idols of the world that we live with today? The false gods. Well, first of all, you have the false gods. You know, I went to a Christian's house one time, and he had a little Buddha in his house. I'm like, dude, what in the world are you doing? With... Oh, I found it in China. It was a great find. Oh, stop it. It's a... Put that thing in the river, man. I mean, cut that thing and break that thing. You get a sledgehammer, I'll help you. I mean, that's a false god. What do you mean any false gods in our house? Amen? Muhammad's a false god. Joseph Smith, Mormon church, false god. You know, all, all, they're all false gods. And it's saying, don't, don't give praise to them. Don't give honor to them. Don't mention their names even. Don't do anything that's going to bring them glory. The only time we should mention their names is to point out the fact that they truly are false gods. But there are other false gods too. What about movie stars and rock stars and athletes? Don't people praise them? I even hear on Christian radio, I had to call the other day because it was just driving me nuts. I mean, I listen to Air One and I love it and I praise God for them. But they're going on and on and they were calling these people stars. Oh, the stars of this group and the, yeah, and the, you know, I'm like, stars? There's one star. And it's Jesus Christ. Amen? There's only one person that should be our hero, and it's the Lord. There's only one person that receives our praise and our glory and our honor and our worship, and it certainly isn't men. And what happens is that we look at the world and how they praise rock stars, so now the Christian guys, everybody's praising them. You know, and for them to come to Calvary San Jose, well, I need $35,000 to come play for two hours, and I'm going to need a catered lunch and first-class tickets, and we'll stop. Well, aren't you supposed to be a servant? Is that how we feed servants these days? Servants get paid 35000 bucks for two hours? I don't think so. And what happens is that people have been praised so much by the world, they start to think that themselves that they're, they're something special. Well, again, we're special in God's eyes, but the reality is we should never touch His glory. Amen? And what happens is we start giving accolades to men. People worship, you know, a guy can take a stick and hit a ball real far, and we start worshiping the guy. I mean, how messed up is that? Oh, why do you worship? Oh, man, you should hear him. Man, he can take a stick and hit a ball. It's incredible. Wow. You know, whoa. You hang on every word. Oh, I got his autograph. I paid 50 bucks. I have him sign a piece of paper. It's incredible. I mean, we, uh, we've missed it. You know, movie stars. Oh, come watch all the stars are out tonight. I mean, every time I hear that, I just want to, Ralph, man, the stars. There's no stars. They're sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? That's who they are. That's who I am. That's who we all are. And we start propping people up. And when you start propping people up, you're going to be disappointed. And I want to say this very clear. Don't prop up your pastor either. Your pastor is a sinful man in need of a Savior. And as soon as you start propping up people that teach the Bible, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be disappointed because you're going to see him lose his temper sometime. Or you're going to see him blow his testimony and go, oh. But see, if you just realize he's a sinner in need of a Savior, he's just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, and you're going to realize how desperate he is for God too, then you're not going to... When we see that in the church, we start having these religious people that people, oh... Billy Graham, oh, you know, Joshua. And the, the reality is that those guys are the same guys that say, whoa, stop. Don't, don't give me accolades, nothing. Don't treat me like that. Don't, don't, I'm not special. You know what? God is great. To Him alone be all the glory. We need to put the false gods out of our house. We need to stop giving accolades to men. The only one that should be worshipped is Him. Amen? Nobody else. Nobody else should be honored and praised and lifted up. Only the Lord. Only Him do we honor. Only Him do we seek after. Attribute number two was He is our rest and He is our provision. We can trust in Him. Even, don't worry about being striving for the things of this world because God is our provider. Number three, He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Let's move on to verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days I commanded you as the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it, you, come out of, you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered the fruit of your labors from the field. 
So during the year, they would have three feasts, and at each one of these feasts, every male was commanded to attend. Every male in Israel had to come for this feast. We have one feast in the United States called Thanksgiving, right? And you know what? I love Thanksgiving. And the, the meaning behind Thanksgiving really is good, that we should be thanking God for everything He's given us. Amen? I love, you know, when I used to live in Southern California and my sister was living so it was great to get the whole family together and just to thank God. Good stuff. Now, these feasts were a lot like that. People came from everywhere, and they came to the tabernacle, and they honored God. The first feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, here's the interesting part of how this points to Jesus so very clearly. The Feast of Unleavened Bread began, Passover ended at nightfall, and, and Feast of Unleavened Bread began. Passover is a picture of what? What's it a picture of? Who remembers? The cross. Remember how when they had Passover, the last of the, of the plagues in Egypt, that they said, take the, the, the blood of a firstborn spotless lamb, put on the doorpost, put on the sides. Again, a picture of the cross. And the angel of death would pass over. So Passover was a picture of, a, of the cross. As soon as Passover was completed, they went into the feast of unleavened bread. What is leaven a representation of? Sin. So after Passover, there's no sin. Through the shedding of blood came the remission of sin. After the passing over and the shedding blood of the firstborn spotless lamb, you see the sinlessness, a picture of Almighty God, of Jesus Christ who is without sin, but a picture of who we become after we too have been passed over in a sense, right? That we too have gone to the cross of Christ. And so that points to the cross. And so we see that our God is not, that as they went and they did this, had this feast, it was pointing them to the Messiah. The next feast after that, after unleavened bread, that he mentions there in verse 16, is the feast of harvest. Now this feast took place 50 days after Passover. This feast got a new name later. And the name was, who knows? Pentecost. Where do you get Pentecost from? 50. Pentecost. So 50 days after Passover, after the shedding of blood, for the, co- for the covering of sin, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, picture of sin no longer existing anymore, you had Pentecost. And Pentecost, it says here, that they gave their first fruits. At the fruit, they would come in and take the very first of what they had harvested and give it to the Lord. They didn't give God the leftovers. They gave God first. So often we can fall into the trap of giving God what's left of our time, of our gifts, of our finances. Whatever we have, we give God what's left. We're supposed to give God first. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. If you're struggling, put God where He belongs on the list first. Amen? My favorite verse in the Bible is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That doesn't mean Christ is first on my list. It means He's first, He's tenth, He's one hundredth, He's one thousandth, and He's every number in between. He is the list. Amen? That's who Jesus Christ is. And so it says here, we see at Pentecost, so they've had the Feast of Unleavened Bread pointing to the Lord, and Pentecost they came and gave of their first fruits. Now here's what's great. We know that many hundreds of years later, what would happen at Pentecost? God would give us the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. As they were sitting in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. They received power from on high, and they were filled with the Spirit of the living God. Now, as Christians, when you give your life to Jesus Christ today, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and you become a new creation in Him. I've talked about this before real briefly, with, in, and upon, right? He's with the world. They calm their conscience. That's how everybody knows that it's wrong to hurt small children. How does the world know that? Because the Holy Spirit's with them. The Holy Spirit were not with them. They wouldn't even know that's true. But when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit goes from being with you to being in you. You're a new creation in Christ. You're born again. It's a down payment on heaven. He's sealed you. You're one of His kids. He'll never take you, you'll, no one can ever snatch you out of His hand. But the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit also being not just with you and in you, but in Acts chapter 2, being upon you. He comes upon you. And you have dunamis, dynamite, Holy Spirit power. And so... That's what Pentecost was pointing to. And here we are all these years earlier, and they're coming in and they're having this feast. And what's it pointing to? The coming of the Holy Spirit. And then the third feast is the ingathering. Now this is at the end of the the time when they would come in and give God one more offering at the very end of their harvest time. So they brought Him the first fruits, and they came to Him again at the very end. Now what's interesting to me is that that feast is also called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And you see that as they're wandering through the wilderness, God's sustaining them in the wilderness, and they had this feast of booths. And what that points to is the millennial kingdom that is yet to come. So when all these hundreds of years ago, what, are they, what were they doing? As they were having these feasts, one was pointing to the cross, one was pointing to the Holy Spirit, and one was pointing to the second return of Christ and the millennial reign upon the earth. So guess what? Our God is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Amen? When you read stuff in the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Him. Attributes of our Savior. He's a God of truth. Amen? He's a God of righteous judgment. He's a God of provision. He's a God of rest. And He's a God who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. You know what? No other man has ever fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And you know what? No other man could. It's amazing when people say they don't believe in Christ, but you know what? What are the possibilities of someone saying, I'm going to be born in this city? How many of you guys pick which city you were going to be born in? Raise your hand. You can't do it, right? Because you're not God. The only way you could is if you were God. But it says that our Savior would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem, hundreds of years before he was born there. And where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. Says he'd be born of a virgin. How many of you have decided you can't do that? So what happened? He was born of a virgin, just like the Bible said that he would be. The Bible said that he would be numbered with his transgressors. The Bible says that he would be a Nazareth. The Bible says he'd be of the lineage of David. The Bible says over and over and over and over and over again the way that he would die. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he would be crucified hundreds of years before crucifixion existed as a death penalty. Well, how is this possible? Because he's God. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's the God that we serve. Godly attributes that we see here as we just simply look at the law. Lastly, verse 14. Excuse me, verse uh, 17. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. When you give the sacrifice of unleavened bread, you are never to give it with a blood sacrifice. Why? When you give the sacrifice, there should be no leaven when you're having the blood sacrifice. Why is that? Because leaven is a picture of what? Sin. And the blood sacrifice points to Jesus, and Jesus was, with, was without sin. Amen? Again, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They're making these sacrifices not fully understanding. We can't have leaven because it's the blood sacrifice. There can't be any leaven. Why? Because the blood sacrifice is going to be the perfect Lamb of God. And He is without leaven. He's without sin. But yet all of this was pointing to Jesus. Again, our God, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 18. You shall not offer the blood... Uh, verse 19. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now what in the world does that mean? You shall not, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Where does that come from? First fruits. You come in and give God the first and the best again. But don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now to this day, this is heavy duty in Israel in the way that they eat. The Jews, to this day, will never have meat and dairy products in the same meal. You know, they have a McDonald's in Israel. No cheeseburgers. Because they viewed that you can have either dairy products or meat products. You can't have them both together. And it all goes back to these verses right here. The law of Moses says you cannot boil the goat in its mother's milk. So you can't have dairy products and meat products at the same time. So if they're having shish kebab, there's going to be no cheese. And if they bring you a roll with your meat, then you're not going to have any butter for your bread because that would be mixed. Now, this is what the Lord said. You strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. He's not talking about not eating cheese with your meat. You know what he's talking about? In those days, at Passover time, they had those that had these fertility rituals. And one of the fertility rituals was that they boiled these goats in their mother's milk, these young goats, and it was supposed to bring fertility to the people. And he's saying, don't be having idol worship. Don't be boiling goats in their mother's milk. And again, straining at a nap, they oh, look at that law, and they've taken it out to this, this wild degree but that's not what God was talking about. Passover was a time of remembrance, of deliverance from bondage, not a time for, for, for fertility rituals. It wasn't a time to do that. But how did they worship? Here's what the Canaanites did. This is interesting. I think you'll find this interesting. They worshiped the gods of fertility at Passover time. Now, what happens at Passover time now? Who knows? What holiday is right at Passover? Easter. And when they worshipped the Canaanites, when they had idol worship and they boiled goats in their mother's milk, the other fertility symbols that they had were bunnies 
and little baby chicks, and they colored eggs. That's what the Canaanites did at Easter time as a fertility worship. Oh, if we, we have little bunnies. Why, why bunnies? Because bunnies are fertile, right? That's where the Easter bunny came from. That's it. So it's because they were extremely fertile animals. They said, oh, we've got to have bunnies, and we've got to have little chicks, and we color some eggs, and you know what? The God of fertility will rain upon us, and we'll have all this fertility, and they did it at Easter time. Well, Passover was not about fertility, and Easter is Resurrection Sunday, deliverance from the bondage of sin, not Easter bunny, and fertility eggs. Amen? Amen? All right, okay. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be hopping up here like the Easter Bunny on Easter Sunday and having baskets for your kids. That ain't happening, okay? Now, if you have a basket for your kids, that's between you and the Lord. You can do that. But here's the thing. I see churches where, come to church this Sunday, the Easter Bunny's going to be there, right? And the Easter Bunny's out in the parking lot handing out, you know, colored eggs. Let's have some Canaanite worship out in the parking lot before we go in for the Easter sunrise service, right? I mean, we've kind of gotten things off track. Now, why are there so many kids? You ask an eight-year-old at school, what's Easter about? What do you think the first thing most kids will say? It's the Easter bunny. I get a bunch of candy. I get a big basket full of chocolate stuff. Ah, that's pretty awesome. You know what? That's sad. Because that's the enemy's way of getting our eyes on what Easter's really all about. Don't boil the goat in its mother's milk. Don't get caught up in, in futility or fertility worship. Don't get caught up in that. It's about Jesus. It's Resurrection Sunday. There's no greater thing in the world to celebrate. And it's, it's crazy that the church would be having Easter egg hunts on Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Shouldn't our kids walk away saying, this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead? I had a girl sitting next to me in my high school class, and we were talking, and it was right around Easter time, and somebody said something, and she was saying something. I go, I go you don't even know what Easter's about. She goes, yeah, I do. I go, really, what's it about? And she goes, I don't know, what is it about? And I go, are you in high, you're in high school, you're 17, you don't know what Easter is? Well, candy, right? No. It's not candy. It's when Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who suffered and died that you might have eternal life, rose from the dead. I think that's a little more significant. Santa Claus. Isn't it amazing? You got the Easter bunny on when Jesus rose from the dead, and you got Santa Claus when Jesus was born. Anything to get people's eyes off of the truth and get their eyes on something else. And again, you know, if you, if you have presents on Christmas, you know, Christmas is not to be, oh, well, we're Christians, we can't have any fun. No, we should celebrate Christmas more than anybody. And we should celebrate Easter more than anybody. Amen? Because we understand what it's really all about. But he's saying, don't boil the goat. And we're not having an Easter bunny here on Easter Sunday. Amen? We're not boiling the goat. We're not going to do that. Why? Because we want people to know what Easter is really all about, and it's about Jesus. So he is the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of Passover, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the gathering booths. Again, the fact that he's coming back. Verse 20. Done, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place where I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Who is this here that says the angel of the Lord? I will send an angel before you. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Bible, that's always Jesus. If you see the word angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. The angel right here is Jesus. How do I know? Look at the second verse, verse 22. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Who's the only one that can pardon your transgressions? It's Jesus. So who's this angel? It's Jesus Christ. The fourth attribute is that he is the only way. It says there that he will show you the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We talked about the fact that he's the truth. Now we're going to talk about the fact that he's the way. There's no other way by which men can get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. Verse 21, verse 22, excuse me. But if indeed you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. If you obey God, he will bless you. If you honor God, he will be with you. If you trust God, He will bless you. Praise the Lord. Obedience is the highest form of worship. And I love what he said a minute ago. He says, my name is in Him. What is the name of God? When, when He was standing at the burning bush, what did He say His name was? I am. When Jesus spoke, when they came and said to arrest Him. Do you remember that story? They came to arrest Jesus, they had their swords out, and they said, are you Jesus? Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And what did He say? I am. And what happened to all the people? 
they all fell straight down. My name is in him. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I mean, I can give you all the I am's. There's I am, I am, I am all over the Bible. That's who Jesus is. His name is in him. That's who Jesus is. Remember, this is written back in Exodus. This is not the New Testament we're in, right? It seems like it, doesn't it? Because it so clearly points to our Savior. But I love, I just love how we can clearly see him. If we walk in obedience, God will bless us. Verse 23. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So as you go in before your enemy, God will go before you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? If God is on our side, we have nothing to fear. You plus God is the majority. You have nothing to worry about if you're walking with the creator of the universe. Again, I've talked about this before. I had a lot of gangbangers in my youth group, and they're always talking about, homie got my back. Oh, homie got your back. As soon as something happens, he's out of there. Jesus Christ, creator of the universe, got my back. Amen? My best friend spoke, and the stars were in the sky. Let me see your friends do that. Amen? I mean, that's who I'm walking with. That's who's got my back. And that's who it is he's saying right here. That we, when we walk with him, he goes before us. He defeats our enemies for us. He's in control. He's faithful. He's sovereign. He's God. Verse 25. You shall serve him. Or verse 24, excuse me. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. He says you don't bow down to any other false gods. When you walk in obedience to God, it requires the destruction of all other false gods. The first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall serve no graven image. And he says here, if you're going to walk in obedience to me, you must eliminate all other false gods from your life. Again, what are some of those false gods? We talked about them a minute ago. And again, I'm going to get to this very quickly. But you know what? I think the biggest false god quite often in our home is, the, is, that, is that box in the corner of our room that beams into our house. Right? The false god that gets our attention. The false god that we bow down to. The false god that we sit and watch and spend time participating in and not spending time with the Lord. We say, well, it's, I don't have any gods in my house, but I, the average American home, the TV is on seven and a half hours a day. And then people will say, well, well, yeah, and if you're struggling with, with adultery or lust or you're struggling with violence or anger or pride, guess what? I guarantee you that TV's got a lot to do with it because those images desensitize you to sin and you watch it over and over and over and over and over and over and after a while, what happens? It's not that big a deal anymore. And you start falling into that very trap. They sold their souls to rock and roll, right? Talks about the fact that we want your kids. And how are we going to get your kids? We're going to desensitize them by just pounding them over and over and over the same message. And after a while, it won't even bother them anymore. It won't shock them anymore. And so we have these idols. And for us to truly serve God, we've got to get rid of anything that gets our eyes off of Him. It says remove the sacred pillars, whatever those things are. Anything that's in your house that keeps your eyes off of Him. And it blows my mind that people will say, well, TV really doesn't impact people. Really, that's why people spend $3 million for a 30-second commercial during the Super Bowl because it doesn't work, right? I mean, they're spending that money to get their impression in front of people because it really doesn't impact people, right? TV impacts us big time. The music that pours into our homes, we need to be careful of those false pillars, those idols that come into our homes. Verse 25, "...shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the numbers of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among the people of whom you come. And you will make all your enemies turn, I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you." If Israel would serve and honor God, He'd bless them, He'd provide for them, and He would deliver them from their enemies. If you and I will serve and honor and obey God, He will make us spiritually healthy and we will grow. Our enemies already been defeated. Again, if we're struggling with anger, lust, covetousness, pride, remove the idols from our house and get our eyes more on God. Verse 28. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. Now this seems bizarre that He says, I'll send hornets before you. And I heard, now this, I didn't say this, but I heard John Corson say this one time. He said, he, in referring to this verse, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? <laughs> I said, oh, bro, that's just wrong. But he's saying, see, the hornets, right? You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because the hornets are going to go out. Now, some people think this is a, a reference to the Ar uh, uh, Egyptian army, and other people just believe it's just flat-out hornets. And you know what? Did God bring some severe damage on Egypt with fleas and flies and lice and locusts? Yeah. You think he could wipe out some armies with, with some hornets? I think so. I think if God brought hornets down, people would be running. 
And so I believe it's literal because it doesn't tell me it's not. And so he's going to send hornets in to wipe out the army so when they go in, they don't have anybody to fight. Man, I love that. Our God is in control and our God takes care of the enemy. Verse 29. I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Now this is my last point and I want just pay attention. It says there, little by little. It says, I will not drive them out in one year. A lot of people, when you become a Christian, you think you take a little pill and all of a sudden everything's perfect. Oh, I prayed, that's it, I'm done. And what does he say here? He says, little by little, I will drive them out from before you. Little by little. God indeed is the way. He's sovereign and he's in control. But he's not going to drive them out as quickly as you would like. Why? Because he wants you to grow. The Bible says in James, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Because in difficulty, we grow. When we get stretched, we grow. When we go through times of difficulty and struggle, we have to turn our eyes more toward God. And so often, we want God to give us the answer right now. But that's not the way it works in a Christian walk. The Bible says, lay no hands, lay hands on no one quickly. Don't put people in places of ministry and authority quickly. Why? Because there's something to be said for walking with God for a long time. The more time you walk with Him, the more you learn of Him, the more you grow in your relationship with Him. Now, does that mean that, that God doesn't want to use you today after you're saved? Absolutely, He wants to use you. Can you share your faith and share your testimony? Absolutely. Can God use you here? Absolutely. But there's something to be said for time with God. That's where growth comes from. Why does God want us to be patient? Because He's patient. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, patience. All of this is called sanctification. It's a process of becoming more and more like Christ, but it happens over time. The longer you walk with God, the more you walk with God. Again, remember that His timing is perfect. As you wait, you grow. Now you might be sitting here tonight saying, I want a godly wife. I want, I want her to be, I know what she looks like. I've got, got a picture, okay? She's beautiful. She loves God. She wants to be in ministry. Maybe you're here and you're a, a girl. I want a godly husband. I know what he's, he's about six foot two. He's got this kind of job, this kind of car he drives. I mean, I could, write, I could draw you a picture of him. And you got an idea of what you want. And you're like, I've been praying for this for like three weeks, you know? Or I've been praying for this for a year and a half. And how come it hasn't happened? Here's the thing. Maybe that's the person God has for you. But if that's the person God has for you, God's got to do some work on you to make you attractive to him or her. Amen? I mean, you want a godly woman? Be a godly man. You want a godly man? Be a godly woman. Amen? And so often we, we give these demands to God, and God's saying, no, I'm not done with you yet. I got that for you, but I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready to be the spiritual leader to that godly woman. I want you to be ready to be the helpmate to that godly man. You know, I want this in business, Lord, and I want it now. And God's saying, you're not ready, because if you do it now, it'll distract you. It'll get your eyes off of me, and you'll be so focused on your job that you'll, you won't love me as much anymore. So you're not ready for that. I can't give that to you. It will distract you. I can't give that to you in ministry, because you're not ready yet. Why? Because you're still growing in your walk with God, and if I give that to you, you'll get puffed up, because that's what the Bible says. You'll start thinking it's got something to do with you. It's not till we come to the end of ourselves that we're ready to be used mightily by God. So when we pray and it says little by little, that's a good thing. The longer we walk with God, the more we're going to grow in Him. Amen? In the last couple of verses, I just want to finish up the chapter. And it says there in verse 31, And I will set you in the, the bounds from the Red Sea to the, to the sea, Felicia, and from the desert to the river, and I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out from before you. And you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely be a snare to you. The Lord sets boundaries of the promised land. He says, it's going to go from here to here. And He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We're to minister to the world, but not be of the world. Amen? You minister to them, but don't have fellowship with them. Minister to them, love them, lay it on your life for them, esteem them greater than yourselves, but don't have fellowship with them. Sadly, this is going to be broken in Joshua when we get there, because the, you know what's going to happen? They're going to go in, and they're going to make a covenant with these false gods, with these, with these idol worshipers, and you know what's going to happen? They're going to fall away from the Lord, and they're going to wreak heavy-duty consequences. 
And the same thing can happen to us. We go start making covenants with the world. We start getting tied in with the world. You know, some of you think I'm pretty radical when I tell you, you'll say, yeah, I'm really struggling at home. Tell me about your home. Well, I got these two roommates. Are they Christians? No. Need to move out. Oh, come on, man. You don't know. We're in Santa Cruz, and it's expensive here, and it's hard to find a, a Christian home. Oh, yeah, I guess God created the universe to have a hard time finding your room. I, I could see where that would be a problem. I mean, here's the thing. We start putting limits on God instead of honoring God. And we get unequally yoked together with them believers and we make a covenant with them and we fall into sin because of it. The same warning that came here to Israel. If somebody can go grab the worship team, have them come out. So what are the attributes of God our Savior? What are the attributes of Jesus Christ? One, He's truth. He's a righteous judge. He brings us rest and provision. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and He's the one and only way that we can get to heaven. I love that song when I was a little kid. One way God said to get to heaven, and Jesus is the only way. Amen? If you say that now, you're a religious fanatic. So call me a fanatic, because Jesus Christ is the only way. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. I just praise you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, just that that we can see you so clearly in the Old Testament. We can look in the Old Testament and just see a clear picture of who you are, of your attributes of your love, of your grace, of your truth, of your justice, of the fact that you're the only way, that you provide for us, that we can find our rest in you. And Lord, I just pray that each one of us, Father God, would draw near to you, that you would be our rest, that you would be our peace, that you would be our hope, that you would be the love of our lives. And Father, I pray that each one of us, Lord, would be patient as you're growing us in our relationship with you. That, Father, we'd fall so deeply in love with you that we would long to just be closer and closer to you every day. Just continue to do that sanctifying work in each one of our lives. Lord, we love you. We praise you. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand up and close a worship song.